Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of my weekly podcast, Soundtracking, my pride and joy. Um, it's lovely to have you along with us. Thank you very much indeed. Um, for those of you who are maybe quite new to the podcast, we've been running it for five years now. And one of the main things that we wanted to make sure that we did when we started the show was nothing was really defined in terms of our guests, apart from that we could have a conversation about film and music. We don't always want to have to rely or need to rely on a big name, on someone that you are incredibly familiar with. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. The whole point of the podcast and what we really wanted it to feel like was a conversation and a conversation about people's creativity in the world of film and how the world of film and music converge and create something spectacular and wonderful and unique to every film and every opportunity that they have this relationship with. So that's why on some weeks on the show you recognise people and some weeks you won't. But I very much hope that whether that's the case or not, you still feel part of the conversation and you still feel like you can learn something. So, yeah. Um, you joined me actually recording the intro and outro for this week's podcast. I'm in Edinburgh in the homeland. I've just arrived here. Um, I'm DJing. I mean, the idea of playing music out to actual people is slightly giddy about the fact of it. I've DJed a few times over lockdown over the last 18 months, but they've either been on my own in my little office or out being recorded in places, but with only a kind of skeleton crew. So the idea that I'm about to go and play to 10,000 people at a race course just outside Edinburgh, if I'm talking very fast or sound slightly weird or excitable, that's why. So tune in next week, folks, to find out how the DJ set went. Maybe I'll absolutely crash and we'll forget how to read an audience and what to play, but who knows? Fingers crossed. I can't wait. Anyway, back to the podcast. And our latest guest on Soundtracking is an Italian screenwriter and director who I absolutely loved spending a bit of time with. Um, apologies now on my pronunciation. I try my best to do that thing where uh, I, I do accents and that's kind of appropriate for something we're going to talk about in a second. But Ferdinando Cito Filamarino has collaborated multiple times with former guests on this show, Luca Guadagnino, and also brought us a couple of feature films of his own. The latest of those is Beckett, which you can watch right now on Netflix. That's Beckett. It stars John David Washington and Alicia Vikander. And I can't really say too much about the plot line or the story without giving anything away. But what I can tell you is that it tells the story of a tourist who becomes the subject of a manhunt whilst holidaying in Greece. He's got to get to the American embassy to clear his name following an accident. Excitingly, Ferdi's film is scored by none other than Ryuchi Sakamoto, of which plenty more shortly. But first, a word from our friends at Michelle Thomas. Now, I've always had a real passion for language. I always think that I can speak languages. I can't. A couple badly. But I think that that stems from having done a lot of travelling with work, but also just being absolutely enamoured by the glorious world of foreign language film. But the idea of actually learning a language can be, I think, intimidating, especially as life is just so hectic 
Well, I'm glad to report that the Michelle Thomas method fits seamlessly into any schedule and situation. Thanks to its audio-only formatting, you can listen as you work from home, on your return to office commute, on the flight, for your post-pandemic vacation or DJ set or curled up on your couch. Michelle Thomas is the ideal companion for picking up a new language because it's stress-free. So you can relax or multitask as you learn. It's like having a friend who speaks a different language being in the room with you, encouraging you as you improve. You'll be amazed how quickly you can start to speak and form your own sentences and pleasantly surprised by the progress you make. The Methods creator, Michelle Thomas, broke down entire languages into logical chunks or building blocks. As a learner, you are presented with these building blocks in a logical order and slowly build up the complexity, helping you to say what you want, when you want. Now, there are courses in 17 languages at varying levels, whether you're starting from scratch, hoping to brush up on your skills like me with my French, or improve upon your existing vocabulary. This takeaway audio course can be streamed online or via the Michelle Thomas Library app, which means you can listen wherever, whenever. Now, as a soundtracking listener, we've got a great offer for you with a big discount for you to start or indeed continue your language journey. Simply visit www.michellethomas.com, that's M-I-C-H-E-L-T-H-O-M-A-S.com, select your desired language and course level and use the discount code SOUND at checkout to claim 25% off your purchase of any Michelle Thomas course. So that's 25% off if you visit michellethomas.com using the discount code SOUND at checkout. The Michelle Thomas Method, learn a language for good. And so to the fabulous Verdi and Ryuchi score for Beckett. And it's with one of his cues from the film that we begin, Bus Ride. Fardy, how are you? I'm all right. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We're on air, I see, from the sign behind you. There we go. Yeah, always. Life is on on air, isn't it? Um, Where do we find you? Where are you in the world? I'm in Milan at home. Yeah, this is home. It's been uh, my base. I grew up here, then I kind of lived around a little bit, but most of my time has been here, and I still consider it my sort of base camp, as I would mountain expeditions. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like life's been a bit of a mountain exhibition for the past 18 months. But yeah, it's good for us all to have a good base camp. And um, listen, congratulations on Beckett. I I had such a great experience um, watching your film. It, it just reminded me uh, and I felt like I was reminded of so many great films that I loved growing up across lots of different genres, actually. It felt like it's it's one of those brilliant films that you can't put the whole thing in. A, and I love when you can't put things in boxes. I think that that's a great thing. I love that too. Yeah. 
And so it feels like it's lots of different things. Tell me a little bit about the the story behind the film, really, in, in terms of, you know, it's, it's your story and you directed it. So tell me a little bit about the, the kind of backstory to Beckett. Well, I always liked to, two things simultaneously. And one you already mentioned. And well, the first thing was this genre, or we could even say subgenre of the, the sort of manhunt thriller. And the fact of having, you know, a hunted man and a background with political implications as two main ingredients to a story is something I've always loved in literature and cinema and somewhat always kind of wanted to explore. Uh, And the second is, like you mentioned, the idea of, in the best possible way, polluting genres, (laughs) right? Uh, In a way that, you know, stays coherent to the movie you showed up to watch. So in this case, yeah, let's have a manhunt thriller with the main character who is in over his head with a crazy, uh, extraordinary situation and little by little discovers that this sort of uh, this incredible uh, crisis that he finds himself in. But let's have this character be somebody who not only is completely unequipped for the situation, yeah. has absolutely zero secret secrets that turn up and help him out in the situation but is literally in some way from another movie so uh in a way the movie begins as a drama like a relationship drama where you see a couple on vacation and then kind and then the thriller basically hijacks the drama and then the movie becomes what the movie is which is that that manhunt thriller so i wanted to make sure that we had as as uh, i've heard tarantino say who's a master of it, deliver the goods mm-hmm. of the genre that we're playing with, but at the same time, go with an angle, with something that I felt personal and urgent to me, which was creating a type of character who himself is going through a personal crisis, but also has to deal with this extraordinary situation. Yeah, it's almost kind of the weight of what he's going through personally is 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 almost just hovering around him whilst he, exp- he gets himself physically through this experience as well it's it's so you're very much on this journey with him and John David Washington is he's so good watching his every move but also watching every kind of stillness and pause and silence with him because he has this incredible ability to just draw you in yeah absolutely to your point uh, I think this calls back to what we were talking about earlier and uh, the fact that John David absolutely nails both aspects of the story as we set it up is obviously fantastic. He is both the embodiment of a genre player mm. who can fill up the screen and sort of in charge with the physical prominence of somebody who has to do you know deal with these larger than life events. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that character is going through a personal crisis. And he, whenever all the chase and adventure slows down, it hits him. And, and, and he is absolutely uh, with that uh, minimalistic uh, precision delivering that as well. And that, that ambivalence is what I find, you know, what was the personality of this movie to begin with and that John David nails completely. Mm. 
I mean, I hope he had a really good holiday or a day in a spa after this because it's like he is put through the mill. You know what he did after this? What did he do? Tenet. He went to shoot something for a few days and then he went to shoot Tenet. No! That was his holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, he had the physical side with you and the complete brain kind of melt with Tenet. So, yeah. Well, and physical too. I mean, for the stuff he did for Tenet, I mean, he had to prepare a lot before he started that. But that was that summer, just after us. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> With regards to kind of to shooting and, and, and location-wise, I was really interested to kind of just ask you a little bit about where you chose to to set the film as well, because I love that it's set in Greece. I mean, I I have an ex-boyfriend who's half Greek. And we used to, I spent so much time in Greece in different parts and, you know, in Athens, but a lot in lots of little weird, random, remote parts of Greece as well. And I just thought it was fantastic that you, that was the location and the, the your choice of location for it. Was there any particular reason why? Well, the story needed definitely two things. One on the premise of us wanting to establish the all of the elements of the story on some kind of realism yeah the place needed to in recent history be basically going through a sort of crisis or anyway turmoil that would stage protests and things that you know without spoiling anything come into play in the story yeah believably and the other was a rich variety of landscapes <laughs> because of course the movie the manhunt movie is in a way a kind of road movie at least the way i see it and the best way to portray that i find is to change landscapes that way you sort of perceive you know the travel mm. and uh, i i disliked the idea of going somewhere familiar i i like you know with these movies it's always fun to discover places definitely in a way that you wouldn't normally mm-hmm. so thinking of greece the idea was, okay, let's avoid islands, let's avoid the summer sort of touristy vibe, and uh, let's explore the mainland. Yeah. And I went on this beautiful drive around the whole country with, you know, the local production took me on this amazing drive, and I discovered places, of course, I'd never Im- even imagined before. And mm-hmm. uh, I had some idea of the kind of places that we needed, but then I literally just sort of let Greece hit me and kind of pieced it together, even backwards in some cases. This location is so perfect that we should make this story work out so that we can go through here. (laughs) Uh, So that was the angle on how to show Greece. And and we went to places where there's, uh, let's say, very few inhabitants too. Yeah, no, I think it it works. And it it almost kind of, um, it gives the film even more texture. and, And it's almost a character in the film in itself, in a way, really. It's brilliant. So good. When it came to how your film would would sound kind of musically and the score for the film when we were talking earlier I I loved how you you described that kind of pollination of of genres you know and yeah and was that something you thought about with regards to how you wanted music to sound in the film as well because it'd be it's very easy to make films within certain genres sound a certain way and it's quite interesting you mentioned Tarantino earlier because even with something like The Hateful Eight you know, when he got Morricone to do the, the score for that. And instead of it being a Western, it's a kind of, it's a horror score, really, you know, in terms yeah, of yeah. so clever, that kind of messing with that kind of expectation slightly on that side of things. But what was your kind of thought process and decisions on on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's the same. Uh, the idea was to 
respect the genre that we were playing in while at the same time dealing essentially with, with our main character. Mm. So in a way that I see it in music, not so much as simply support or even worse, decoration, but I, I see an opportunity for significance or even, you know, to push even harder counterpoint. And uh, in that sense, absolutely, the idea was, yeah, we have, you know, a, a chase and we have, or we have a, a fight, but it's obvious what one traditionally does in the genre, but, but let's, let's, uh, let's find a different kind of sound and let's even think of the rhythm. What, what if the rhythm is counter to that? And then also there's the, there's the whole soul of the movie, which is the story, the journey of Beckett who yeah. is a man who obviously finds himself at the beginning of the film in one place with a very specific kind of music. And then in the middle of the movie in a completely different place. And at the end of the movie in yet another other place. And so that was definitely the main fuel that informed all the, the musical decisions in terms of tone and, uh, and uh, rhythm and sounds also, literally the yeah. instruments. And in that sense, of course, no better uh, collaborator than Ryuichi Sakamoto, whom, of course, manages to operatically or minimalistically, depending on the tone of the movie, it would equal grandeur, walk the line between the requirements of the film and the soul of the, of the characters, you know, the, the movie inside the characters which as contained as they may be, and I think of, for example, um, The Sheltering Sky, 
is bombastic and operatic, <laughs> you know? So that, that discrepancy is the significance of the way that Sakamoto confronts his scores to me. And so in this movie, it felt like, you know, an amazing opportunity. Any particular scores of his that are particular favorites of yours, you know, that that highlight what you were talking about in particular for you, for you personally? Look, I, I love all of them and I love I and of course I love I love the sheltering sky, I love The Last Emperor. But I have to say, in thinking about this movie in particular, I always had, you know, my one of my favorite filmmakers was always Brian De Palma. <laughs> and I have to say that Snake Eyes is a, a movie I find to be an, a beautiful, amazing movie, very mm -hmm. underappreciated. The score for Snake Eyes does exactly what we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. which is to deliver the, the, the you know, it, it's all set in this, in this large uh, stadium for a fight. And uh, it, it manages to deliver both the sort of the grand scale and spectacle of that context of the fight. And then eventually when the plot thickens of the, you know, the suspense elements, mm -hmm. but really there is this very weird character at the center, which is this very sleazy cop played by Nicolas Cage, yeah. who is, is, you know, is having literally the most important life-changing night of his life, where all his sleazy ways are put in, you know, uh, into question. And he's basically having a crisis. And I remember when I watched that film, this, the way the score hit me was, you know, obviously the spectacle, assassination, who did it, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. But then there is something so touching, that, which you don't expect in a movie yeah. like that. And that is Sakamoto's score. And so that's, that's what I thrived to achieve in this movie as well.
it's that way I feel like not every film he he scores for warrants it but in Snake Eyes like you talk it's it's almost like sort of he's he's kind of internalizing the character almost in a way through oh it's so clever it's like the subconscious of the character is yeah. speaking to you via the music and what's funny and and funny not funny what's what's <laughs> uh stimulating and of course emotionally captivating is sometimes that happens even before the movie itself is is conveying that to you the music is hinting at it before it even happens yeah. <laughs> mm, you know yeah. you, you understand the tragedy of a character while he's still kind of elaborating it is, is definitely not talking about it or it's not happening in a plot point it's just hitting you with that music before everything was that a case of just sending him the script and asking him if he if he wanted to do it how I mean, being a fan, it's always that thing, isn't it? Of kind of, you kind of go, oh, I really hope he, want, he likes the script and he wants to do it. He, it happened through Luca Guadagnino, the producer of the movie, whom had collaborated with him on a short film. Mm-hmm. And used his music, obviously, in, um, in Call Me By Your Name as well. And yeah, they used, yeah. used some, some of his old, I mean, Luca and I and Walter, the editor who's worked with yeah. Luca forever and has worked with me since I started working, we're all like nerdy fans of Sakamoto. Like, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, so they used a bunch of his music on Call Me By My Name and then, and then they collaborated on, on that short film that they did, the, the Staggering Girl. You know, that was exactly around the time right after they did that when we had to settle on a composer because I because I, you know, I haven't used a composer before uh, on on, let's say, cinema projects. I, I My first short film had no music, no score. It had a song in it, but was that was, um, uh, you know, it was in the story. They listened to it on the radio. And my first uh, feature we did with uh, only archive yeah uh but that was a strange movie it was, it was a portrait of a poet yeah antonio yeah yeah and the music came in uh, in a sort of i guess the radical version of was of what i was trying to explain earlier about the significance and counterpoint so it, it just felt more fitting to just find I, I already had every time i work on a movie i i come up with a long playlist anyway so with that movie, we, we literally just picked the right stuff and put it in the movie. Um, <laughs> so that was different. But in this movie, also because we were dealing with genre and we had all these things to cover, uh, the problem with finding music that inevitably would be from very different places, but that would be coherent, it would have been impossible. So it was obviously the smartest thing to work with a composer. 
But of course, I was very delicate about it because, uh, you know, it, to me, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I, I feel very delicate about music. And so they had collaborated and it felt like, well, why don't we just ask, you know, <laughs> let's just ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. And yeah, he read the script and, and uh, he liked it. And we had a beautiful conversation about it. And, oh. and the conversation was actually almost exclusively about the character of Beckett himself and about how he is a flower who starts the begin the, the movie as a bead, if that's how you say it, and then he blossoms, a bud, and then he blossoms. That was the image that I remember from that first conversation that we had. And then, and then of course, you know, shared tons of music. We had long uh, meet. I went to New York to, to talk with him and, uh, you know, at that stand. But, but yeah, the reaction was the, to the script, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Did he, was he privy to any of, of the performance as well whilst you were shooting or, or had he, had you kind of locked in music? prior or was it an, an ongoing thing because I've been really um uh not surprised but I love hearing when when composers kind of very much you know they 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 have a connection with the script but then as they're composing they're they're reacting to to performance uh, and and watching you know those those actors in those roles um uh he um did not watch dailies if, if that's mm. what you mean uh we I, I went to show him the film we cut the film together with 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 no music mm-hmm. um and showed it to him with no music and then that's when we started working <laughs> uh, <laughs> working meaning we, we we talked a bunch before shared a lot of music and everything and but then his work began after we'd cut the movie together but yeah absolutely like just like the, imp- the the first conversation off of the script was about character also later it stayed a lot about that with some of course sometimes a an important uh having to find an important synchronicity when dealing yeah. with the genre elements because you know we always kind of had to keep track and make sure that as we said earlier we delivered the goods in terms of that tension
it's funny just um talking about call me by your name i i, I listen to that soundtrack i would say at least once once a week i think it's the most amazing and beautiful collection of of existing pieces of music apart from those i think it's a Sufjan stevens track but working closely with luke on that film and and you know the relationship you have as as filmmakers and stuff as well and working alongside so closely with someone like that it's it must be a a, a, a wonderful learning experience as well in terms for you as a as how brilliant your film career is as a filmmaker yourself in terms of being in that environment and watching and seeing how how other people work is that something that you you kind of take on board as you are working with other people well yeah i i uh this is a you know it's a story that's that's i've had the privilege to collaborate and be with Luca for many years and i we met when i was an assistant director on his first uh uh no it was my second film as an assistant director and he was coming to Milan to do I Am Love. That's where we mm-hmm. met. And from then on, after that, I wrote a, a, an idea for a short film. And then he and his producing partner, Marco Morabito, produced it. And from then, with him, with Marco, with Walter, the editor, uh, you know, with this family of collaborators, yeah. we worked on many projects together. And of course, each of these projects being very different because of how Luca's taste is, how my taste is, we have quite the variety and the differences in terms of the tones that we're interested in. Yeah. So of course, each of these experiences, and I've done different things. I've, I've been an editor on documentaries. I've, I've been other times second unit director, but um, each one has taught me different things, obviously. Yeah. What What has this experience of Beckett, what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned as a filmmaker from the experience of making Beckett? The biggest thing... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well the list is long uh, I mean obviously the, you know the, while I talk I'll think of an answer but basically the, the project was very ambitious you know from my position I made a first feature that was definitely much smaller and uh, it, that was also differently ambitious it was also kind of a crazy it was a period piece which involved poetry I mean it was kind of a risky uh, project but uh, but this so different, bigger in scope, involving action and stunts. You know, definitely one thing that I already knew, but has confirmed its uh, importance in me is find the best collaborators to work with. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I worked on this movie for many years, for six years. Wow. Uh, so I, I thought about every aspect of it very much. I have tons of research visual research, musical research, journalistic research, notes, all the writing. I have lots of uh, humongous baggage. So I, you know, I, I walk in always feeling overprepared to a certain degree. However, the train hits you <laughs> anyway when you start the prep mm-hmm. uh, with the myriad of problems that a movie that has every day a different location like this one. And its own trains as well. And actual uh, trains. Actual trains with their actual <laughs> train problems, which I swear to you are not few. When we're shooting a real train move, not on a green screen, a real train moving with the real landscape and everything for real. I, again, no matter how prepared you are, the best weapon is having amazing collaborators who know what they're doing, who you're in sync with, yeah. whom you shared all of your thoughts with. And then, you know, the things that come up on set, which they do, they're, you know, they can be shorthand. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you've already thought of, you've already collaborated or stuff that, that maybe doesn't even arrive to you because that, you know, they dealt with it because they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's definitely something I will try to keep close to me forever as a, as a paramount importance. Yeah. And what was on the playlist for Beckett? You know, you said you, you make, you had a playlist of kind of songs and stuff. What kind of stuff was on there? If you don't mind me asking. Well, I, I guess I had two, one for the score and one for the incidental. Uh, yeah. And for the score... Well, John Cage, uh, Benjamin Britten. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love British composers. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, Charles Ives. Mm-hmm. And then thinking more of electronic cluster, for example. Quite the eclectic mix. And then there is this Greek composer, which I, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know before this movie, called Xenakis. Uh-huh. Uh, who is very, this is very strange and concrete music, very violent, intense and physical. You feel it's bodily. <laughs> that was that was also very important. And we also, that the, the character who's the main cop in the movie isn't named in the film, but we call them Zanakis in the script. Amazing. Um, the right homage. <laughs> I love it. And listen, I'm really excited to see what's next as well, um, because I think, you know, that the, you talk about six years worth of work and, and um, you know, and, and how much work was involved in putting this film together. And it's it's thoroughly enjoyable. It really, really is a great experience. But I am excited to, to see what's next from you as well, um, because I think that, you know, when you, when you said that this was a this was a kind of this was a there was a lot there for you to do. And you've absolutely achieved that. So. Do you know what's next? Have you got the next project in mind? I'm writing or? the next project. I hope, uh, and it, the next project is also a, a play on genre of sorts, but uh, I'm hoping it will take less time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this movie was hard to put together, obviously, because it was ambitious from my, my position. And, you know, it only happened in the way that it did thanks to the work of my producers and, uh, you know, and eventually the people who decided to come on board because they... Mm believed in it but you know hopefully now it will become a little bit easier and maybe it won't take that long <laughs> yeah well I look forward to it and um, Ferdi thanks so much for your time it's really great to get the chance to chat to you and massive congratulations on Beckett thanks so much Ida you take care you too bye
拜拜。score to Beckett, that's Embassy by Ryuchi Sakamoto. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Fernando Cito Filomarino. My huge thanks to Ferdi for taking the time to talk to us. Beckett is streaming on Netflix now with Ryuchi's score available via Cab America. Now, before we tell you what we've got coming up next, I wanted to talk to you about Masterclass, which I've been watching and learning from for a few months now. If you didn't know already, Masterclass offers online tuition across a whole range of fields from some of the best known names in their respective professions. Now, I find it to be a wonderful research tool and a learning tool for work and life, and it is utterly fascinating. I've learned tips on my photography from Annie Leibovitch, got an amazing insight into independent filmmaking from Spike Lee, while the Roxanne Gay course is incredibly insightful on writing for social change. Now you can even brush up on your culinary skills as well with the likes of Gordon Ramsay. It's the most incredible way of learning new skills from some of your favourite people in the world and it's totally immersive and the quality is very impressive. Masterclass is the online education subscription service offering over 100 courses across many subjects from creative writing, gardening and acting to a plethora of other subjects. Each of the courses is broken out into 10 to 20 minute lessons that are really easy to fit into your daily life and you can watch them from any device. So I'd highly recommend you check it out. And as a soundtracking listener, you get 15% off an annual membership with unlimited access to every masterclass. Go to masterclass.com forward slash sound. That's masterclass.com slash sound for 15% off masterclass. You won't be disappointed. Right, that's almost all from us. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ferdy. Please head to edithbowman.com to catch up with every single episode of Soundtracking, including my chat with Luca Guadagnino. You can also find links to Spotify playlists for every show in which we list the tracks we play in the order they appear so you can listen and enjoy every single one in its entirety. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please don't forget, if you have the time, to subscribe to our Wee YouTube channel where you can find a show that I put together with various guests from the podcast and a few others that don't quite fit into it but are well worth hearing nonetheless. 
Next up, we have a double header for you. Very excited to be joined by Kate Shortland, director of Black Widow, and welcoming back the wonderful Lorne Balfe, who talks about Black Widow and a few other projects that he's working on. So a nice double header of Kate and Lorne for you on next week's show. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Music.